Hello everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 22, Rome Takes to the Sea. Last time, we discussed the first major encounter of the First Punic War at the city of Acragas, where the Romans bested the Carthaginians in a decisive yet bloody battle. With the fall of Acragas, the Roman Senate realized that now all of Sicily might be ripe for the taking. In classic Roman fashion, the Senate claimed that allowing so powerful an empire as Carthage to maintain control of Sicily would always threaten their southern border with raids or even invasion. Whether you choose to believe this justification is up to you, but the relentless Roman war machine soon swung into motion to make this claim a reality. In order to win the war, the Romans knew they would have to challenge Carthage on the high seas. As long as the Carthaginian merchants continued to bring riches overseas to Carthage, and the capital continued to pour mercenaries and resources into Sicily, the war could continue indefinitely. The Carthaginian system of command favored such a strategy, since, as we remember, Carthage appointed generals to posts for years at a time allowing her to afford to play a waiting game. By contrast, the Roman military structure, focused on two consuls who held supreme power for a single year, was designed to encourage aggressive action and prosecution of wars. Consuls, desiring to win glory and renown, nearly always sought to capitalize on their small window of opportunity for eternal fame by forcing a decisive engagement which would determine the outcome of the war. The landscape of Sicily did not favor such decisive battles. Rugged and hilly, guerrilla warfare tactics were highly effective in the Sicilian countryside, as we shall see later, and most of the cities were heavily fortified due to the chronic violence and instability on the island. A land war in Sicily could almost be seen as a type of ancient Vietnam, besieging one enemy stronghold after another, slogging onwards through an ever-shifting battlefield as the bickering Greek, Phoenician, and Sicilian city-states constantly switched from one side to the other. The Romans suffered heavy losses assaulting smaller Carthaginian fortresses on the island while the principal cities like Lilibaeum and Panormus remained secure from Roman aggression. Frustrated, the Romans vented their wrath on the hapless populations of the captured cities, something that no doubt drove many of the Greeks who were on the fence firmly into the Carthaginian camp. The fact that Rome's armies were composed of citizen soldiers could also have contributed to this desire to finish the enemy off quickly. Although highly motivated and patriotic, most Roman soldiers of this time would have to return home at the end of the campaigning season to tend to their farms and sow their crops. By contrast, Carthage's mercenary troops were full-time warriors who lived in the field, allowing the Carthaginian generals to pursue longer strategies. The comparison of the Roman and Carthaginian armies has always been a source of curiosity and lively debate over the centuries. 
born in battle. Rome had created a civilization in which every man was expected to be a soldier, ready to lay down his life for the people. Nearly all Roman soldiers were citizen soldiers, and all her generals were amateur aristocratic commanders. In a way, this could be seen as one of Republican Rome's great strengths, since this warrior culture created highly motivated and highly devoted armies. As we have emphasized many times, by contrast, Carthage's ranks were filled with mercenary troops. Their loyalty was to their paymasters, and so long as the gold kept flowing, they would keep fighting. This lack of an innate devotion, or stake, in the war has often been cited as a reason why the Carthaginian armies often suffered defeat at the hands of their Roman counterparts. However, the use of mercenaries could have its benefits. These men were professional soldiers, familiar with the blood and terror of a full-scale war, as opposed to the Roman levy with his family sword and shield. This inexpertise in training and experience could be one explanation of why the Romans suffered such tremendous casualties in their wars, a thing only overcome by their higher population and morale. Whether or not this is true is an open question, but despite their early defeats, Carthage's armies should not be seen as worthless by any means. Even so, Rome's early victories do come off as the ultimate triumph of the amateur, the victory of the part-time citizen defending his country against the hired gun, so to speak. With the land war stagnating in Sicily, the Romans quickly realized that they would have to take to the water if they could ever hope to decisively defeat Carthage. There was just one problem, though. Rome was a land power with no naval experience, no fleet of any size to speak of, and perhaps most critically of all, no quinqueremes. As we remember from Episode 7, the quinqueream was developed by engineers hired by Dionysius I, tyrant of Syracuse. Based on the trireme model, the quinqueream was a much heavier warship with a wider deck, which allowed for two more rowers than the trireme, for a total of five banks of rowers on either side of the ship, hence its name. Known also simply as the Five, the Quinqueream could carry a larger complement of sailors, rowers, marines, and even catapults than the Trireme, increasing both speed and staying power. Once introduced, the Quinqueream rapidly displaced the older Triremes in most major navies. In the East, other, heavier variants of questionable effectiveness were used at times. The Eastern Diadochi developed tens, i.e. ships with ten banks of oars, and the Ptolemies even built a mind-boggling forty, which carried 2,850 marines on board. Despite this arms race for more colossal vessels in the East, in the West, the Quinqueream retained its position as the preeminent warship in Western fleets. Rome was a notable exception among its Western counterparts, not having a single quinqueream in her possession at the outbreak of the First Punic War.
Carthage, meanwhile, not only had an impressive quinquereme fleet, she could also draw on nearly 500 years of naval tradition since her founding, which stretches back even further if you count the naval genius of her Phoenician forefathers. However, regardless of their status as amateurs, the Romans were quick learners, as the Carthaginians were to find out to their cost. Soon, fate gave the Romans an excellent opportunity to prove their ingenuity. As is so often the case for the First Punic War, the Greek historian Polybius is our main source for the events. According to Polybius, when the Romans had first landed in Sicily in 264 BC, a Carthaginian quinquereme, eager to come to grips with the Roman flotilla, ran aground in the shallows and fell into Roman hands. The Romans disassembled this ship and used it as the prototype for their new war fleet. Interestingly, many historians think that the Carthaginian ships were built using timber that was pre-cut into certain pieces with markings to show where each piece went, functioning as an ancient form of standardized parts. Think of a set of Ikea furniture. Thus, when the Romans disassembled the Carthaginian quinquereme, they found they had a ready-made template to construct their own vessels. Polybius states that the Romans could build a fully outfitted quinquereme within 60 days of the timber being cut using this Carthaginian model, a truly impressive feat for such newcomers to the naval scene. However, these ships needed men to crew them. As we have seen, rowing was a skilled profession that required trained crews. While waiting on their ships to be finished, the Romans came up with a novel method of familiarizing their crews with the work. Polybius states the following, The work of constructing a fleet went ahead in the hands of those entrusted with the job, while others recruited crews and taught them how to row on land. They seated the men on their benches on dry land, with the seats arranged just as they would be on the ships, and the timekeeper centrally positioned among them, and taught them to begin and end their movements hands into the body while leaning back, hands away while leaning forward, in time with the timekeeper's command. Just imagine the long lines of Romans arranged on benches along the beaches, laboring to learn how to use their oars in unison day after day until finally their newly constructed ships would arrive. In 260 BC, after a feverish season of building and training, the Romans finally launched their fleet of a hundred quinqueremes and twenty triremes to challenge Carthage's age-old supremacy on the waves. Their first foray into the seas did not get off to a promising start. Impatient to wait until all his ships were completed, Nius Cornelius Scipio, the consul in command of the newly minted fleet, sailed to Masana with seventeen quinqueremes. While at Masana, he received word that Lipera was ready to come over to the Romans if given proper aid. Lured by this report, Scipio sailed for Lipera and anchored in the harbor of the town. Unbeknownst to him, 
Hannibal, the Carthaginian commander of Panormus, had received word of his coming and dispatched 20 ships to blockade the Romans in the harbor. Trapped, the Romans ran their ships aground and tried to escape inland, but they and their commander were captured by the exultant Carthaginians. Unlike his Carthaginian counterparts, Scipio, once released and back in Rome, did not suffer any significant public disgrace or punishment due to this failure. While the Carthaginian commander might have been fined or even crucified for overseeing such a debacle, the Romans had a much higher tolerance for failure and often showed greater leniency to their defeated generals. Arguably, this worked in their favor since their commanders tended to be more daring and ready to gamble on favorable-looking enterprises, something that few Carthaginian officers cared to risk. As we will see, this would not be the first time that Roman consuls would be impetuous and audacious in their campaigns, both for good and for ill. Scipio, however, did not emerge unscathed from this ordeal. Despite the fact they did not see fit to publicly reprimand his conduct, Scipio's fellow Roman senators bestowed on him the unflattering nickname of Asina, meaning she-donkey. For a proud Roman aristocrat, this probably seemed a fate worse than death. With the capture of a Roman consul and the 17 inaugural Roman quinqueremes, we can imagine the Carthaginians indulging in a slight smirk at the supposed presumptuousness of these landlubbers in taking to their element. If this was the case, those smiles were soon wiped off. Desiring to scout out the numbers of the rumored Roman fleet, one Carthaginian admiral, yet another Hannibal, sailed around the coast of Italy on a reconnaissance mission with 50 ships. Unfortunately for him, as soon as he rounded the tip of Italy, he ran headlong into the entire Roman war fleet and lost nearly all of his ships, narrowly escaping capture himself with the few survivors of his expedition. Having both suffered initial blows, the Carthaginians and the Romans regrouped for the inevitable naval showdown to come. With Scipio out of commission, the Romans appointed his co-consul, Gaius Dulius, as commander of the war fleet. This done, they made further alterations to their vessels. Although they had beaten the Carthaginians off the coast of Italy, the Roman ships were understandably inferior in construction to their Carthaginian counterparts and proved more sluggish to handle. This would make them vulnerable in a pitched battle with the Carthaginian ships, which prided themselves on their agility and maneuvering speed. As the superior mariners with the superior vessels, the Carthaginians could run circles around the Roman ships, ramming and disabling them at will, while frustrating every attempt the Romans made to come to close quarters. To counteract this, the Romans once again came up with a unique solution by adopting the corvus. The corvus, which means crow or raven, in Latin, was a boarding bridge, approximately four feet wide and 36 feet long, attached to a pole which could be raised and lowered at will using a system of ropes and pulleys. 
Beneath the boarding bridge was a large spike shaped like a bird's beak, which, when the device was dropped onto the enemy's ship, would break through the upper deck and firmly anchor the two ships together. By means of this bridge, the Romans could tie the nimbler Carthaginian quinquirines down and turn a sea battle into a land battle on floating platforms, thus negating the Carthaginian advantage in seamanship. When the bridge came crashing down onto the enemy vessel, the Roman soldiers would cross two by two, holding their shields before them or over the sides of the low railing, thus securing themselves from missiles. The Romans also nearly quadrupled the number of marines on board their ships for a total of 120, making each vessel an effective delivery system of shock troops to overwhelm the enemy ships. With his ships equipped with the new Corvus device, Dulius put his fleet out to sea to meet the Carthaginians. He did not have to wait long. News quickly reached him that the Carthaginians were raiding the territory around the city of Mylae. Dulius sailed to meet them with his entire fleet, and when the Romans came into view, the Carthaginians eagerly embarked to meet them with their 130 quinquiremes. Hannibal, this time the same general who had slipped out of Acragas under cover of dark, was in command of the Carthaginian war fleet, and his flagship was a Sevener, a ship with seven banks of oars, that had originally belonged to Pyrrhus of Epirus. According to Polybius, the Carthaginians were still unimpressed by the Roman naval effort and sailed like predators after easy prey. Believing themselves to be on the verge of an easy victory, the Carthaginians advanced towards the Romans carelessly without even taking the precaution of keeping their formation together. Polybius vividly describes what happened next. As the Romans approached, the Carthaginians could see the ravens nodding aloft on the prows of every ship, but they had never seen anything like these strange devices before and did not know what to make of them. Nevertheless, since they felt nothing but contempt for their opponents, the leading ships sailed fearlessly into the attack. But when battle was joined, their ships were held fast by these devices, and the Romans used them to swarm across and fight the men on the decks. Terrified by the transformation of the conflict into a kind of land battle, the Carthaginians who survived the slaughter surrendered. And so they lost the first 30 ships to engage, along with their crews, and the flagship was among the captured vessels. Against all odds, however, Hannibal escaped by the skin of his teeth in the tender. The rest of the Carthaginian ships were bearing down to ram the Romans, but once they were close enough to see what had happened to their first line, they veered aside, away from the reach of the devices. Knowing the speed of their ships, they hoped to avoid the risk of the ravens by sailing around their enemies in order to ram them from either the side or the rear. But the Romans swung and swiveled all the ravens round this way and that, so that they could not fail to pin any ship that came near. In the end, after losing fifty ships, the Carthaginians broke off and fled, 
their morale shattered by these new tactics. With their decisive victory at the Battle of Mylae, the Romans gained an enormous boost in confidence about their new war fleet. They had outperformed the famous seagoing Carthaginians in a head-to-head fight using Roman pragmatism in the form of the Corvus and good old true Roman grit. The Roman consul Dulius was awarded with a triumph in Rome, allowing him to march through the capital in a triumphant procession, displaying his victorious troops, his spoils of war, and the captives taken in his campaign. A monument, the Columna Rostrata, was also commissioned to detail his achievements. Meanwhile, our old friend Hannibal only barely saved himself from the vengeance of the Council of 104 by a clever trick. After the battle had already been lost, Hannibal sent a message back to Carthage requesting permission to engage the Roman fleet. When permission duly arrived from the Carthaginian Senate, Hannibal was able to claim that he was only following orders and thus bore no blame for the defeat. Retreating to Sardinia, Hannibal would attempt to rebuild his fleet, but his luck would soon run out once again. Bolstered by their successes, the Romans launched bold raids into Sicily and Sardinia, and during one of these raids, Hannibal allowed himself to be blockaded in a bay along the Sardinian coast. All of his ships were burnt or sunk, Hannibal escaping from a scene of defeat. However, soon after, his irate troops crucified the unfortunate commander, ending his somewhat mixed military career. Despite their notable victory at Mylae, the war on the water continued to vacillate back and forth between the Carthaginian and Roman fleets. Carthage replenished her recent losses using her colossal dockyards in the capital, and soon the Romans faced an even greater fleet than before. During the same time, the land war in Sicily continued to prove inconclusive, each side scoring varying successes. One Carthaginian general, a certain Hamilcar, scored a notable victory by ambushing and slaughtering 4,000 Roman allied troops, while the Romans managed to take several small Carthaginian holdings. Still, the war threatened gridlock once again. To combat this, the Romans conceived of an even more daring plan, an invasion of Africa itself, Agathocles style. With their growing power at sea, The plan seemed feasible, albeit extremely risky. However, a mighty Carthaginian navy still barred the way, and a massive naval battle would have to be fought before Roman boots could land in the Carthaginian heartland. A bigger fleet was needed. Next time, we will see how Rome's ambitions led to the largest naval battle history would ever see. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to The Layman's Historian and follow me on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with the latest updates on the show. Also, if you get a chance, make sure to post a review on iTunes. It really helps the show out. Until next time, take care 
and read more history.